Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Well, good morning, everyone. The few and the proud. <laughs> That's all right. I, the way I look at it is, if you're here right now, you either are here out of a sense of duty, um, you feel a sense of obligation. If, if the people of God are gathering, I want to be there. Or out of a sense of a spiritual hunger, but maybe God's got something for me specifically that he wants to communicate to me, and he does that through the foolishness of preaching. Hopefully it's not too foolish, but preaching nevertheless. Or maybe it's a sense of both of those things. You're both spiritually hungry, and you come to the house of the Lord out of a sense of duty because it's what you know to do. Either way, I respect you for getting out of bed on an on a early Sunday morning. It's a beautiful day. There are a lot of other things you could do, but you're here, and hopefully what I have to say will have some meaning to you or for you. So I want to ask to lead in, um, are there any theologians in the house this morning? Is anyone here a theologian? Look at your neighbor and, and with a quizzical look on your face, ask him, are you a theologian? What, what is a theologian? Does anybody have a, a definition, just a, a working definition of that term? A student of the word of God. I like it. A theologian is a person who studies theology. So that the next question is, what is theology? Theology is the study of religious beliefs or of theism. Who is God? Christian theology is the study of Christ, of the Word of God, of the Bible. So if you are a Christian theologian, which I'm hoping that most, if not all of you are, you are a student of the Word of God. The last time I spoke, I talked about being a theologian. And I'm, I'm, I ask you that question this morning because I'm hoping that everyone here considers themselves to be a theologian. You, are, you consider yourself to be a student of the Word of God. I feel that it is critically important in this life. To survive spiritually, you must be a student of the Word of God. <clears throat> so along that same thread... Uh, the prior time that I spoke, be a theologian. I want to, to follow along that train of thought and be more specific. And I know Dean Hickey is probably going to listen to this, and if he doesn't hear a title in the first two minutes, he's going to make one up for himself. I've got to lay some groundwork, but to put a, a, a title to this sermon, I want to call it Preparing Your Defense. Preparing Your Defense. So, I see a logical progression in Scripture. Consider the, the, the following three Scriptures in succession. First, Jesus, when he preached on the mount in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, and I'm going to be rapid fire here, so if you can't keep up flipping pages, that's okay. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So hungering and thirsting specifically for righteousness Following along, Psalm 119, verse 160 says, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. So from the beginning to the end, from the beginning of time into, into the everlasting, God's word 
is righteous. His judgments are righteous. So if you follow the, the succession here, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for the word of God. And the first scripture in the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So following along this progression, you have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you will be filled. But to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for the Word of God, and seeing that the Word of God itself is God, to know God's Word is to know God himself. Does that stand to reason? So in, in this circle of people, I, I suspect that we all acknowledge the authority of God's word, right? Because we, we see that God's word speaks for itself in that regard. Psalm 119 and 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's settled. It's unchanging. It's fixed. It requires no editing. It requires no appendices or any additions at the end. It's sufficient in and of itself Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and 16, he he told Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And he also told Timothy, he said, hey, Tim, 1 Timothy 4 and 16, Timmy, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt save both thyself and them that hear thee. So right in this concise statement, we see that the Bible, the doctrines of the Bible, literally save souls. So to put it as simply as I can, the Bible teaches us how to be saved. But pay particular attention in this particular scripture, 1 Timothy 4 and 16, Paul says, he tells Tim, Othi, continue in them. Now, Timothy is a born-again believer. He's been baptized in the name of Jesus. He's been filled with the Holy Ghost. Yet here we have Paul writing Timothy a letter telling him to continue in these doctrines. Why? Because it'll save yourself, he says. That's not a popular idea in Christianity. We like to think that once you obtain salvation, you're good to go forever, and and, and whatever you do subsequent to that point in your life has nothing to do with your salvation. I, I don't see it that way, and I see the undertones of the concept of continuing in salvation here in this concise statement that Paul speaks to Timothy. So file this question in your mind for, for the time being. Continue in them, Paul says. Why continue in them? Why is that necessary to continue? So, to be, to be candid with you, to be, to be open with you, you're in a Pentecostal church this morning, a, a oneness, apostolic Pentecostal church. I'm here because I believe that salvation, the teachings, the doctrines of Christ, as seen through the apostles, and what they did, and what they taught, those principles are the way that I should do my Christianity. I believe oh, the Bible um, is clear that there is one Lord, there is one faith, and there is one gospel. There's, there's one of those. There's no variations. There's only one. Whatever you believe those one things to be, 
the Bible is clear that there is only one way. If we reflect back to the story of Noah and the ark, God gave Noah a very specific design for the ark. Noah went about constructing that vessel very specifically in in exact accordance with God's plan. And I'll ask you, how many doors did the ark have? One door. Similarly, there is one way for us to be saved. There's one gospel. So these are, I believe that these are very simple, foundational, fundamental truths of God's word. Jesus said in Matthew 7 and 14, that straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. I would say that is a reference to everlasting life. And few there will be that find it. There is one way. So scripture, through the the eyes of the apostles, scripture tells us that salvation comes through obedience of the gospel. There are two passages in particular that I uh, reference to support that idea. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and listen closely to this statement, and that obey not the gospel of our Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 4 and 17 says a similar thing. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? So obedience of the gospel. And according to the apostles, the way that we obey that gospel is given in a very concise statement. And it's probably the scripture that many of us are more familiar with than any other verse in the entire Bible. And that is Acts chapter 2 verse 38. The apostle Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This, specifically and concisely, is the instruction given by the apostles by which we obey the gospel. We obey the good news that Jesus, he he died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. Our death, burial, and resurrection is carried out by obeying Acts 2 and 38. That's the apostolic salvation doctrine. So that's the groundwork. But I see there's, there's a conflict, there's a problem. There's a, an adversary that we face, that I face. I'll, I'll speak for myself here. I see that we have, I have three enemies, three primary enemies of deception. They are Satan, the world, and me, my flesh. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul gives a warning to the church. He says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, not the word of God, but the traditions of men, and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Jesus warned of deceptions in Matthew 24 and 24. He said, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. So the way I see it is the very elect, those are people who regard themselves as as well-grounded in the truth of God's word. Is it possible that the very elect themselves could be deceived? Well, Jesus said that it's possible. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14 says that we henceforth be no more children 
tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, every variation of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So deception is against us. It's something that lurks on the fringes, on the perimeters of our Christianity, out on, on the outskirts of what we believe. The way I see it is what we must do to prepare ourselves against that is to simply prepare our defense. What does that mean? Well, we recognize that the enemy waits to deceive us, to get us to believe in a lie, to literally divert believers away from God's very means of salvation, what I like to think of as God's means of grace, the, the, the means of grace, baptism for the remission of sins, receiving the Holy Ghost, having the teacher of righteousness within us. The devil, the enemy, our flesh, wants to divert us from focus on God's plan of salvation. Romans 8, verse 9 says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So what greater focus would the enemy have than to divert potential believers away from the very doctrines that lead people to having Christ in them? Well, the way that we come against that adversary, those enemies, is to do what Paul recommended to good old Timmy. I always call Tim Carlson, Timmy. Not to be confused with Tim Carlson. I'm talking about the Apostle Timothy. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So consider, well, I guess, let me put it this way. Has anyone here heard of the idea of cognitive dissonance? A fancy term, cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is a stress. It's an emotional anxiety that comes from holding simultaneous conflicting beliefs. So to have two beliefs that are rattling around in your head at the same time that are at odds with one another produces an emotional stress called cognitive dissonance. Uh, some examples. Uh, I suspect that some of you, when you leave church today, will probably head down 18 and head east. And about 3.1 miles down that road, you'll come to an intersection with Highway 18. And if you continue about 100 yards past that on your left, if it's cloudy, there's probably going to be a slight opening in the clouds. There will be light rays shining down on this little piece of glory called Leduc's Custard. You know what I'm talking about. You're driving by there, and you might be tempted to go in there because custard is good, is it not? It's... I would argue that it's the best. But there's a conflict that goes on because you know that custard is not all that good for you. You know that that custard in the moment will bring you enjoyment, but in the long run, custard is probably not the best thing to do. And so in, in a, maybe just a mild way, you're going to have a conflict. You'll, you'll experience some cognitive dissonance, so a little bit of emotional anxiety. I want it, but I know that I shouldn't. Uh, another example would be tomorrow morning, Monday morning, back to the grind, right? It's time to head back to work, and you'll probably have set your alarm unless you've got one of those internal clocks that wakes you up automatically. I do not. You're going to be tempted to hit that snooze button because 
when, it, when that alarm first went off, you're still tired. And you know that if you continue to rest, once you get out of bed well-rested and you go to work, you might be late, but you're going to be well-rested and you'll be more productive. The problem is your boss is probably not going to be all that happy about it. So you're going to experience a little bit of cognitive dissonance, a little bit of emotional stress. When that alarm goes off, do I, do I or do I not hit that snooze button? I could show up tired and on time and not be all that productive, or I could show up late and rested. My boss is going to be mad, but I might accomplish a lot. Well, the degree of stress that you experience in these situations is proportional to the value or importance that you place on those beliefs. Custard? Okay. It's not that big a deal. But when you start thinking about the conflict of beliefs in your theology, as a theologian, as a student of the Word of God, if you've established beliefs, this is what I believe. If you can literally enumerate your beliefs, this is what I must do to be saved. This is what the Bible tells me. This is how I see it. This is what God has communicated to me, however you want to phrase it. As you continue in your theology, your study of the Word of God, If you're anything like me, you will encounter passages of Scripture that will contradict, at face value, what you currently believe. Has anybody ever experienced that? I appreciate that honesty. I have. In fact, there have been times in my life where I have have experienced prolonged, deep inner turmoil, seeing conflicting ideas coming out of the Word of God. The thing is, God, within the word of God, there is no contradiction. Scripture itself perfectly reconciles with itself. So there must be an explanation. And so when I encourage you this morning to prepare your defense, figure out what the word of God is, is telling you. Formulate those questions and don't be afraid of them. Don't let that anxiety turn you off to such that you put your Bible on a shelf and it collects dust because you don't want to face those stresses, those emotional strains. Confront them. Be a student and come up with answers to those questions so that your defense is prepared. The flip side of it is if you, if you don't do that, if you don't take your theology seriously, you will become a fulfillment of the prophecy of scripture that talks about those who will follow the winds of doctrine. And you don't want to be a spiritual tumbleweed just blowing through life, following whatever the next um, soothing thing that you hear so that you can do away with this anxiety, this stress. Uh, My prayer, I literally pray to God, do not give me peace in deception. If I'm believing in a lie, if I have been deceived, if I have gone wayward with, with my belief, I believe in you, God, I believe in your word, but I believe that there is only one truth that comes out of your word. If I read Shakespeare, I can't pray to Shakespeare and ask him to tell me what his word means. But God, you are alive. You are living, you are living in me, and so I believe that I can pray to you. You are the author of this book of your eternal word that is forever settled, and I can go to you to give me an explanation. And so I'm armed with with various faculties, mechanisms by which I can answer these questions to prepare my defense against deception. So in in the remaining time, what I'd like to do uh, in shifting gears is I've 
picked out three passages in my journey have I've come across them and either it's been in my personal study time or actually in, in the case of these three if we get if we have time to, to complete them in Bible study with others in discussions with those who disagree with my view on, on the word of God on the apostolic doctrines that have been a challenge to my faith that have caused me to question frankly to to question. And I don't think that questioning is unhealthy. I, I think that of any faith that is untested is not much faith at all. Um, a friend of mine recently postulated that any repentance that goes untested may not be any repentance at all. To say you're sorry, but then to go on sinning the same way, did you really repent? I'm not, that's not the focus, but I'm just saying if, if you have established your beliefs and you just you shut your engines off and say, I'm, I'm, that's as far as I'm going to go, without any further seeking, you're going to miss a lot in your relationship with God, in, in the richness and depth that God has in store and, and prepared uh, for you through his word. So be a student of the word, and I, I want to demonstrate what this means specifically to me in, in my journey. If You'd like to turn to Acts chapter 16 and verse 30. So I've talked a little bit about salvation. It's a very important subject to me, and I would suspect that it probably is to you, because um, that's ultimately that's kind of what we're that, that's what we're striving for, eternal life through Jesus. Acts chapter 16, verse 30. It says, sirs, the question is posed, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a pretty concise question. What must I do to be saved? We, could, we ask that same question. Others ask that same question of us. You can't put it more plainly and simply than that, right? Does anybody agree? That's a simple, very plain statement, a question. What's... The, what's the answer that's offered here? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Okay, so in, in my journey, I, I look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38 as the keys to the kingdom. Identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection through repentance, that's my death, through baptism in the name of Jesus, that's my burial, and through receiving of the Holy Ghost, that's my resurrection. And through that, continuing in that, continuing steadfastly, as the apostles did, through that is my salvation. But here I see the the apostles themselves, this is Paul and Silas, offering this response to that pointed question, simply saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. See, the struggle for me was that I see a consistency with that answer with the prevailing themes of salvation in, out, out there in Christianity. That salvation just simply comes through believing. I believe in Jesus. I, if I just say those words, I believe in you. There's some switch that's flipped in heaven and, and that, that writes my ticket to the, the marriage with Christ. But does that explain 
in fullness what Paul and Silas are saying in response to this question. What we must do here is look at the broader context. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So the backstory, the st- what's going on here is Paul and Silas have come into the city of Philippi, and it's in Macedonia. This, uh, this is the first city that was evangelized in Europe. In all of Europe, this is the first place where the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached. It was populated by Greeks and Romans primarily, and the, the residents were not Christian. In fact, they were primarily into uh, mystical religions. They did not worship Jesus. They were rooted in, in mysticism and worshipped uh, mythical gods. What, what happened leading up to this, this question that's asked is there's a slave woman who's following Paul and Silas around this city for multiple days, apparently, and she's nagging these guys. One day, Paul finally gets fed up with the situation, and he turns, and in one smooth motion, he casts a demon out of this woman. Well, the scripture says that she's a soothsayer. What that means is she's basically a a fortune teller. And like Miss Cleo probably made a killing in her lifetime, uh, giving people phony fortune messages, you know, reading people's mail and telling them what's going to happen later in life. There's, there's money be, to be made there. Well, she's a slave. Her masters, her owners, got upset with Paul and Silas for ruining their money-making scheme. And they find themselves in prison. Well, God, being faithful to the, those who champion his gospel... Uh, produces an earthquake at midnight, late that night. And the prison that Paul and Silas find themselves in breaks wide open. The gates are wide open, and the, the jail keeper, the prison guard, he comes and sees the gates open. He knows that the prisoners, I mean, who in prison, if the, if the gates are left wide open, are going to stay there? So certainly this prison is empty now. Well, that's not the case. But he doesn't know this yet. He, takes, he draws his own sword, and he's about to thrust it into himself to kill himself because it's better to kill yourself than to reap the consequences that are going to be in store for him. Well, Paul sees this about to happen, and he tells him to stop. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. Well, if we... Read on past the question now. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they told this jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Picking up with verse 32, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced. Believing in God with all his house. I want to compare this idea of believing on the Lord with a passage from Acts chapter 11. So it's the story, it's the follow-up to the story of Cornelius, the first Gentile conversion. The Holy Ghost has been poured out on, on Cornelius and all his household, right, for the first time ever. 
And the Jews, the apostles, are amazed by this because this gospel apparently is not for the Gentiles except that God has ordained it to be so. And so an explanation is is being given in Acts chapter 11, verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus. What was I that I could withstand God? So these people who believed on the Lord Jesus, they received that same spirit that the apostles did, the 120 did, and then the 3,000 did on the day of Pentecost. So this idea of believing on the Lord incorporates this new birth experience. So this Philippian jailer, in a crisis situation, probably having no idea about this God named Jesus Christ, probably worshiping some Greek mythological God, when he asked a question in a crisis situation, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas tell him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you need to reject these false gods and you need to put your faith in the true God, Jesus Christ. And I want to draw particular attention to the word shalt in verse 31. And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Indicative of a future tense. You will be saved if you put your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. As apostolics, what does that mean to us specifically? Well, it means that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are going to obey the commands of Peter. You're going to receive the keys to the kingdom and you are going to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you will receive the Holy Ghost as you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So does anyone see the the harmony now? So if you come across a passage like this that tells you very succinctly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, I profoundly agree with that. That's what the Bible says. And the reason why you shall be saved is because you you will obey the gospel that comes with faith in Jesus Christ. I've just got a couple more minutes here. And I'll go through one more uh, challenge, a passage that was challenging to me in, in study with some other people. Uh, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus. It says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Well, maybe at a a cursory reading of this passage, maybe nothing stands out to you, but if you consider the question, how do you know if you've received the Holy Ghost? That's a fair question, right? If we, if we link salvation to receiving the Holy Ghost, I mean, Jesus said, uh, Paul wrote to the Romans that if, 
Any man that hath not Christ, he is none of his. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you are none of his. So this receiving of the Holy Spirit is directly relinked to your, your eternal life. Well, verse 13 was offered to me for my consideration as the answer to that question, how do you know that you've received the Holy Ghost? In whom also ye trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, the idea that was posed to me is, if you want to receive the Holy Ghost, as soon as you put your trust, your belief in Jesus, that in itself is receiving the Holy Ghost. That was a challenge to my faith because it it seems plain on the surface. But as I prepared my defense, as as I dug in and looked into the underlying principles of this statement... I, came, I believe that I, I came to a broader, more concise understanding of what that statement means. Well, it's noteworthy, and it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, that this letter is written to the saints at Ephesus. Well, who are those people? Who are the saints at Ephesus? If you are a theologian, if you've studied the book of Acts, does anything spring to mind? This is Paul writing to the Ephesians. Has Paul ever been there before? Have you ever read Acts chapter 19? Let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 19 says, And it came to pass that while while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coasts, came to Ephesus. What do you know? Paul has been there before. And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? What a strange question. What a seemingly irrelevant question. According to Ephesians 13, uh, verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, if you have believed, apparently you have already received the Holy Ghost. So why in the world is Paul asking this question? That seems irrelevant, does it not? I think it's entirely relevant. It's one of the most important questions to ask, in in my opinion. But how do we reconcile this? Paul is asking this question of these certain disciples. Well, they answer him. They said, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, Paul answers and says, unto what then were ye baptized? What What a strange question to follow up. Baptism... What difference does it make? What means or unto what you were baptized? Baptism? Paul's out of his mind here, apparently. Well, they answer him unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that thou should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? Believe on Jesus Christ. These terms should, become, should be becoming more familiar to us now. Well, what happened when he said that? When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came upon them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Okay, 
So how do we now apply that to the letter that Paul is writing to these same people months or years later? I believe it was years later. Paul had a, in, that, in Acts chapter 19, Paul is establishing the church in Ephesus. These people are being born again, right, in the narrative. So now if, if we read that passage in context now, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. Does that word after have any importance to us? I think so. The gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. If you ask these 12 disciples, what does that mean? Okay, I'm, Paul is writing a letter to you. If these guys were to now read that letter back to me, Paul is saying, after, after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does that mean to you? They probably reflect upon this time when this crazy guy, Paul, came waltzing into our city, asked us some crazy questions, rebaptized us in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins, and when he laid hands upon us, the Holy Ghost filled our hearts, and we spoke with tongues, just like they did on the day of Pentecost. So... This revelation, to me, when I say revelation, just coming to, to see the full light of the truth of, of these scriptures, these passages in full context, what I see is a guy, Paul, who is writing a letter to some people that are now members of the church in Ephesus, and he is reflecting back upon their salvation experience in a, in a one special day in their lives that marks the beginning of their true Holy Ghost-filled Christianity. Prepare your defense. So I'll have to skip my last one, my last example, and conclude. Earlier this week, I saw a YouTube clip of an interview with a guy about a year ago who had had an encounter with a grizzly bear uh, when he was out in the back country, I believe, of Montana. And Mike Meyer and I can relate to this guy's situation on, a, on a, a much milder level, but this guy is hiking along, and before he has a chance to even react, a grizzly bear attacks him, bites him a dozen times on his arm and shoulder, and then goes running off. And this guy is left shocked at the attack to begin with, but also that he survived a grizzly attack. He literally says in the interview after the fact, this is unbelievable. I have survived a grizzly attack that came out of nowhere. Well, he gathers himself up and starts heading back to his truck, and it's a few-mile hike. Before he can even... He gets down the trail, and he has no chance to, to defend himself. He hears a stick snap behind him, turns and this grizzly bear, the same one, is right on him again, and this time it rips him up good. This guy was attacked by the same grizzly bear twice on the same hike. The irony of it is that he had a pistol on his side and bear spray on his hip. This guy had the mechanisms, the means by which he could defend himself, but was not prepared to use them. And I'm not going to criticize this man because it came about him suddenly, but I'll just use this, this story to, to emphasize. Folks, prepare your defense. 
Don't just acknowledge that the Word of God has the answers for you, but take time. Be a theologian. Invest yourself into coming up with answers to these questions so that when the time comes, when the the spiritual grizzly bear comes on the attack and all of a sudden you turn and there he is, you've got your pepper spray in your hand and you're ready to defend yourself from the deceptions. Prepare your defense in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.